Break It Down, Make It Better is a series of events aimed at producing educational programming, discussions, and professional development opportunities for artists, musicians, and curators in our community and region. These programs are presented through a partnership with Dwelling Place, ArtPrize, and Creative Mini Michigan. Hi everyone, my name is Heather Duffy. We are here in the WGVU studio and are excited to bring you another episode of the Break It Down, Make It Better podcast. I'm here today with Jean Na, photographer, Hi. director, <laughs> and emotional lover of cats. Sorry I cut off your high. No, that's okay. Hello. Oh, thank <laughs> I do you. love cats. Um, and with Zachary Trebellis, artist, musician, and Avenue for the Arts board member. Hello. We are going to be talking today about collaboration, about response and influence under a big umbrella topic of something hopefully we all know, which is that nothing is original. Gentlemen. I would agree with that. <laughs> yeah, no, I would agree. Um, and I thought that I'd be interested, uh, Jean, in, in you and I both talking about on this idea of like unoriginality, a time when you found if you find if you've had a time where you found an idea interesting in another artist's work yeah. that you then use in your own work, and I'd be curious, you know, what, what appealed to you about that idea, and then how did it change when you used it? Sure. Is there like a specific body of work that you want to talk about, or are you just talking about like anything? And I guess in your artistic practice, of which there's probably a lot of parts I don't know about, and I can go first too because I, I I do have an idea, but I'm just being polite. Why don't you go first? Okay. I, w- I want to hear what well, the sure. base is in your. Um, idea. So I was, I was I was applying to a program where I had to make uh, a proposal about a specific place where I had lived. In this case, it was where I had taught in Japan. And the place that I had lived had a lot of different things I could have focused on. It had an interesting like Christian history or it had the sort of rural farming side. But I really wanted to focus on its um, depopulation and the effects of that, which was like the most negative thing I could have focused on. But I was really interested. And so I to try to get an idea, I decided to first focus on the work of, um, I don't remember their names, but they're two Swiss photographers who photographed a lot of like ruined architecture in Detroit which is traditionally called ruins photography or more colloquially called ruin porn. So I looked at their work a lot and I wanted to, because I, I thought I'm going to be going into a town with a lot of dilapidation and I want to work with photographs. But I sort of shifted the ideas because I read a lot of responses to their work, which became very famous. And there's a lot of negative responses from Detroiters that while these photographs are beautiful, you're misrepresenting our city. And the thing that people said again and again was there's no people in these photographs and there's no people's stories in these photographs and so when i took that idea to ushibuka japan i met with people and i had them choose where they had a like a something that was dilapidated or that was closed or gone but i had them choose a place um like that that they had a memory attached to and then i like talked to them about that memory and had them write it down and i photographed them with that location and the location without them to try to add like two human elements Mm -hmm. to it but yeah, it was just, it was neat to be like, wow, these photographs are so successful in this way, but unsuccessful in this way. How can I improve? So I totally understand where you're coming from now. I get it. I am going to add an anecdote just really to drive home this point that nothing is original. Somehow I did not know about this, I don't know, point of departure for you with mm. this body of work. My whole body of work that I did when I was putting together a thesis for my master's degree was about landscape and memory and loss and, you know, these different um, ideas that are just exactly the same as what you're talking about and wrote a 26-page paper about uh, people 
parachuting in and photographing both architectural ruin porn and disaster porn, like really through my own particular experience with Katrina. But you know, it's mm. it's a an experience that's mimicked in so many different places where it's global, something yeah. becomes devastated in some way, and the visual of that is really moving and visceral and people want to come in and explore it and capture it but don't always capture human stories and a lot of times intention is really important for me personally it was a year ago i did a commission for um, a nonprofit here in grand rapids called disart they were looking for a photographer to do a series of portraits of a group of individuals that they had put together for their fashion show that they do yearly or biannually Mm. and so the project was really heavily inspired by american photographer diane arbus mostly because she was she wrote she rose to fame particularly for photographing marginalized groups of people specifically those who are disabled she would go to like carnivals or um, fairs and specifically target like the freak show area. And she would photograph those individuals um, on black and white, like uh, medium format and large format photography. They're beautiful, exquisite images. But in an interview, Arbus was asked like, why, why do you photograph these people? And she said, well, you know, most people go through life waiting for that pivotal moment where something horrible happens to Mm. them or where their whole life changes. And, you know, a lot of people wait, like live life waiting for that moment or kind of fearing it. And she's like, these people have already been through that. You know, they've already kind of like transcended beyond that moment. And she's like, I'm fascinated in photographing people who have gone through that experience or that trauma and lived through it and have grown. Mm. Um, so that's why she documented them. So I took that and kind of created a body of portraits of these individuals that were inspired by their own personal journeys, all of them being disabled in some way, shape or form, whether it's happened like genetically or later in life. Yeah. yeah, Through some kind of circumstance. And so the main, that was the main thing that I, it wasn't the entire idea was taken from Diane Arbus more or less where it was just like, you know, I met these people in their personal spaces at their homes and I asked them a series of questions about their life and then took a portrait in response to the answers that they gave me. Mm. So I am not familiar with that set of images enough to like call them up and know exactly what they look like and how they're positioned. Did you also use medium or large format? I mean, did you stylistically follow those or or was it more of like a sensitivity that you were responding to? It was probably a mix of both. I did I did photograph on medium format film, but instead of black and white film, I chose to use color because I personally feel like I have a greater sensitivity towards color than black and white. So that was a personal choice that I strayed away from Diane's work there. Is there anything that you're doing in your work that you feel is very old? And a related question is, is there anything you feel like you're doing in your work that's very new or maybe hasn't been done before or or enough? You mean like process-wise old or? Yeah, process or ideas. Yeah, Um, I would say that. So I went, I graduated from Kendall College of Art and Design um, with a BFA in photography and like a third of a third to a half of the photo program is built on traditional darkroom techniques mm. and education. So my formal training in photography is from like the very traditional darkroom background. So almost 80 to 90% of my digital workflow is completely inspired by darkroom mm. work. 
So how I organize my images, how I move between programs, like specifically Lightroom and Photoshop are what I use, um, how I move between them and how I edit my photographs are pretty much identical to darkroom work, but just on a digital platform. Gotcha. And so then I guess you feel like you're doing something that, that's very new or even just like more contemporary. Yeah, in a way. I mean, time. I'm shooting with film, so that in of itself is old. Most right. of the work that I shoot is on film. But I am scanning my negatives, mm. which is like a, a relatively newer process. Right. So The digital side of it. Yeah. It's like living on the cusp of like old and new. Right. Yeah, I just I'm interested to ask this question because I feel like the the I mean I was an art history student, so I feel like there's so much to draw from in the history mm-hmm. of art, but also we're living in like here and now, and there's like things we can respond to that maybe are underrepresented or like are happening for the first time, perhaps, or yeah. seem like they're happening for the first time. And I know in my old work, I mean, I really started making the kind of work I'm making now, like after reading a lot about like some 19th century European movements namely like uh, romantic nationalism, which I'm obsessed with, but I'm not um, with yeah, no one is, uh, <laughs> but, uh, <clears throat> but uh, romantic national, just to explain quickly, it was when countries in Europe were um, like, uh, it was big in Russia and like Scandinavia, they were trying mm. to take folk art and turn that into something that could create a sense of national identity. So oh. an easy example would be maybe there'd be like a very interesting like table leg carved by like a peasant that was beautiful. And they would turn that into like a pillar for a museum. Like they were like this into that. And then we'll have this like Finnishness, this like Finlandia thinking. And then that came into America in the thirties. We kind of interpreted our own way during the depression and the new deal. And that's where a lot of the, the government was commissioning people to do a lot of murals that depicted like regional life. And you can still go around the country and see these murals in like, post offices like even Lowell, Lowell Michigan has a beautiful depression era mural so I was like 22 in my college library and I'm like I love all of these ideas like yeah I feel like these ideas have have they they like resurface all the time under different names like in the 90s in Chicago this was called like new genre public art was its mm-hmm. cool name but I feel like when I'm making work I'm always trying to think about a community's shared culture and making something like with the people of a community and I think like that's nothing new dealing with trying to get into people's lives a little bit more with art for sure i um can relate to that quite a bit a huge struggle that i have personally with photography is that it's just like a lot of it is i mean for better or less invasive like photography is very like not not intrusion but it's you have to have permission more or less to photograph something and i think specifically of like dorothea lang's photograph from the great depression of uh migrant mother that's Mm. the one that's called it's the woman holding like the children it's the black and white photograph and she's like looking off in the distance and she looks very hopeful but um the setting of the image was entirely different like the context of it was entirely different like and i don't think dorothea actually really even had permission to photograph her oh gotcha um and the subject of the photograph i can't remember her name but she never received any royalties or anything like that Mm. so it's like with photography it's always been a little bit tricky because so much of it it's like you just take it and go, right? you know, because it's so fast. But it's so working with a community on like a larger scale and making sure that like so many people are representative or like every voice is represented is, has always been a challenge for me as a photographer, specifically with that group of portraits that I was telling you about. Trying to encapsulate all of that was almost impossible. So right, yeah, I, I, mean, had to, I had to forego a lot. And then that's, I mean, that's how it goes. You know, your concept right. just changes drastically from the beginning to the end. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and I think like, you know, we're saying nothing is original, but and not that this idea is original, but there's just such a long-standing history throughout art and throughout image making in general where one person with one point of view mm-hmm. comes in and kind of like 
colonizes something or just, yeah. you know, or more blatantly and less aggressively um, appropriates and takes credit for an entire culture or yep. way of being where they're not a participant and they don't understand and uh, what it is to live that experience. And so in some ways it feels like while not original, it is something new. We're talking about old and new. I think that that intentionality around inclusion and representation is something that's been badly missing Mm -hmm. um, for, you know, thousands of years. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it makes sense because artwork's always going to represent our way of thinking and our way of thinking has moved in this direction, which is great. And now we're, you know, now we can like, we can work differently, even if we're using similar methods. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, um, I mean, I know my reasons, but Jean, why do you choose to collaborate with others on art when, you know, we both know it's a lot of work? So I, I, I have two main reasons that I do that. One is because I, I struggle with telling my own personal story. Mm. And so I find comfort or I guess like truth in other people's stories most of the time, just because I'm not sure of my own. So I think that I'm still young. (laughs) You're young. Yes. 100%. (laughs) And my life feels like it's always changing and there is no consistency. So I seek out other people's past experiences because the the thing with the past is that it can't change. Once it's happened, it's happened. And um, the only thing that you can do is learn from that. And so, you know, because my life feels volatile and ever-changing, I like hearing what other people have to say about their own personal experiences that they've already been through. Just because it, it gives me a grounding element that if I were to be in that situation or if I already am in that situation, that there is a way out, kind of. Yeah, well, you're like gaining, it's like you're asking about their wisdom in a way. I yeah, mean, it's it's entirely about their wisdom, yeah. more or less, you know, yeah. their personal experiences that have um, really shaped them right. and in what way. So that's, for me, my art making process is entirely about learning through other people's mistakes or successes. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the the personal reason is that I, I try to tell my story sometimes, but the images end up always turning out to be something else. So okay. I I haven't completely solidified that part of my right. my art making process yet. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I feel like yeah, I feel like we're on similar trajectories maybe for different reasons, but yeah, for me personally, I um one reason I like to work with other people is cuz I'm really curious and I think that there's sometimes something I really want to know and not just about a specific person but about like many people. Like I had an art show once called Time Warp and all of the pieces were like it was kind of the cross-section between identity and time. So Mm. it was like, who were you a hundred years ago? And like, who will you be in a hundred years? And like people had to leave tape recorder messages to themselves from seven years ago and write letters to themselves from seven years in the future. It was like just all these questions. Like, I want to know all these things about people. It'd be so fascinating to know about how they envision their future life and what they know about their ancestors and everything in between. How do you write a letter Um, from the future? I think I have the letters, if I remember correctly, somewhere, and I have to give them to them in five years. Oh, okay. Uh, Yes, but, uh, and there was just these chairs that my friend helped me make embroider, and they said, they just say, call your parents, and you just sit in them and call it, now it's my desk chair. But, um, so... Yeah, and I I think it's that for me, and it's also when I want to um, use art's power on a community, and like that's like the piece I was doing in Japan. I want to use the ability of art to not only get these people's voices about their like depopulating town, but to change, if possible, you know, these are like the hopes of an artist, but to change the narrative around this town that it wasn't 
full of dilapidated buildings it was full of like positive memories and those yeah. things if i if we wrote them down would stay forever so i think that art can be really powerful um and i'm interested in like how that power can uh act on a community in a positive way mm-hmm. um yeah but i think i've only recently only like last december started showing work that's more personal and i think i avoided that because i was always like Ugh, everyone shows work about themselves i don't need to be one more person to do that but then it was interesting, like showing work specifically about my family and like Greek, like it was all about my kind of relationship with Greece as like mm-hmm. a third generation Greek American. Then it really resonated with certain people. And I, I, of course, realized, oh, I guess this has value to yeah. other people. And yeah, sure. uh, I shouldn't just like write that off that my personal experiences could be useful. I think that the most original that anyone can ever really get is by telling an honest personal story. Well, I guess something is original after all. Well, I mean, <laughs> no, I know, I know. <laughs> I think I think that's a really good point. I think it's a really yeah. good point. I mean, like your personal experiences might not necessarily be original because like people go through similar things, right? And that's how you find community. But it's just like the series of certain of like unoriginal things that you've been through might make it original. Yeah, it'll never happen. You know, the same way twice, probably. Yeah, yeah. typically with that belief. Right. So, right. but even then, it's still not quite original because it's made up of a bunch of different original things or yeah. unoriginal things so it's, it's a whole network yes. <laughs> yeah. so brass tax question because i'm sure you and i both know the participatory art struggle how do you set up a project that involves other people so that um it will succeed because I've seen things succeed, but I've seen things fail as <laughs> in my younger years as well. So That sounds like taking a chance. <laughs> right. <laughs> might fail, <sighs> might succeed. Right. It's okay. For me, I so I um I try I try to be a realist while also being a um like a what's that word called? Somebody who's very hopeful. Optimist. Optimist. <laughs> yes. Idealist, I can't maybe? even think of it. <laughs> An yeah. idealist. Maybe that's not you. I, <laughs> <laughs> I try to be a realist when it comes to the production standpoint of bodies of work in any shape or form. While the concept might be the idealist part of me. The realist in me is always just like, you should plan for everything to fail. Mm. And if it does, that way you won't lose. So (laughs) 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 So I plan my projects with the, with the idea that it probably won't work out. It's, it's a lot of waiting and kind of like betting on certain things to work. So in regards to, and kind of like your, your environmental influences as well, that plays a key part in whether the project succeeds or fails. I'm going to go back and reference that project, that commission that I did for Disart. Um, the project is called Chrysalis. And so that project was a success because the group of people was prearranged. The, they already had all the people that they wanted me to interview and photograph. And all I had to do was kind of just like build a schedule to go meet with them. Now that I make that sound easy. It was not. <laughs> it did, it, it did, I, I know that's not easy. <laughs> it was 100% not easy. Yeah. I um, There were a lot of moments where I thought I was going to rip my hair out. Half of my work is dealing with people who are not professional models, and half of it is. Mm. So when I work with people who are not used to being in front of a camera, I have to be realistic and understanding that to them, to these people, I'm not a priority. Photographing them, meeting with them, and like getting their story and documenting that is not a priority to them because these people have a totally different life from Mm -hmm. what I can imagine and experience. 
So the main thing is, is just a lot of patience and to, and to calculate for that. You know, if you have this idea, this is just like, like a random like set of numbers. But if you have the idea that you're going to meet with this person in a week and that the conversation is going to be an hour, you should plan to meet with them in two weeks and that the conversation is going to be 30 minutes. It's like home project. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you calculate for the worst case scenario right. so that you're prepared for it. If you get a better environment or like a better setup, then that will just make your idea even that much better. Yeah. So when it comes to creating concepts, I'm an idealist. But when it comes to production, I'm a realist. I always plan for the worst case scenario. And it's it makes me a huge pessimist. And I um I, that's the hardest part is that I do struggle with that like depression early on in the project. It's just like, oh my God, no, this didn't work out. Sure, blah, 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 blah. sure. Yeah. And then it always feels like it comes together last minute and I'm like heaving. <laughs> right. I, that all like rings true for me. I find that um, I found over the years personally that I have to set up the instructions of a project. If I'm asking someone to give me some information or to do something that I'm going to use in a project, um, I have to make the instructions very clear Mm -hmm. and I have to be ready to clarify. Like specifically, I had a project that originally was called um, I Identify As and it was just portraits and then people would tell me like, I thought it was a simple question. It was not how they identify. And I had to change one word and it got better. I had to change it to I identify with. Mm. And I said it was more about group identity and where do you feel belonging? Because when I had I identify as, people would just be like, oh, someone who sleeps in and uh, someone who never finishes their books. Like they were so flippant about it, but I wanted to be like, no, I'm being serious. Like I want to (laughs) know, you know, and then people gave me answers like sister or like swing dancer or like, orphan or like something that was just like more serious more what I was looking for but I had to change that word um so trial and error but also I have to learn to balance like flexibility and staying true to my idea Mm -hmm. um because if I make an idea too rigid I'm gonna totally fail but if I make it too flexible I will lose my concept and even when I was doing that project in Japan I had to write sort of like a flyer for people to sign up to meet with me to have their themselves photographed um and i was working with the school district was the one helping me do this because i used to be a teacher there and i would get their like translation back their japanese translation and i would look at it and be like no you took out like they'd be like pick a cool place that you like and i'm like no pick a place that doesn't exist anymore because the project is about that change and they yeah. be like can it just be any cool place and i'm like no it can <laughs> you guys so yeah i feel like i had to like put my foot down on certain things and other things be ready you know i had someone who chose a smell for that project and i never would have expected that as something that didn't exist anymore i was just thinking buildings and a lot of people chose like vehicle like someone chose a ferry system like and someone else chose the smell of fish the fish industry and so i had to be ready to expand yeah and those things are really cool but i couldn't be like no 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 i wanted an old building you know Yeah. yeah so that is something that i can definitely relate to is that for me, what the projects that have failed are the ones that I've been too tight on. Mm. Um, I've built too many boundaries or like restrictions. From that experience, it was because I was trying to make something original and I like had all these little guidelines that I thought would make it different and separate from other projects. And I'm learning that that's not going to help anything really. So a lot of my projects now that are community-based are very open yeah. and usually boil down to just one question. And that question pertains to a genuine experience versus an original one. So to harbor back to an older project of mine, I, I always, I ask people, what is it that makes you happy? Or what was like, what's your happiest memory that you ever have? And for every single person, it's really different. 
you can see like in their eyes that they're remembering a specific event to them. And in that moment, it's truly genuine. It's not original because someone's happy moment might be exactly the same, but right. it is very true to them. And so to wrap it up, I, I think that originality is not real, but I think that genuine is. I would agree. That's awesome. Thanks so much, both of you. This has been really great. We did get through a couple of brass tacks items, and this whole series is meant to be an artists and arts organizers resource. And so as these are posted and live on without the three of us in this room, I think it has a really great opportunity to grow. And so if you, our listener, have access to resources that you want to link in comments or send to us on collaboration, on response, or on being influenced by others' work and ideas, please do share those so that our community can continue to access great resources. Sharing is caring. Thank you both so much for being here and recording this with us. This resource is going to be hopefully very useful to people in our community and beyond. So one more time, thank you to Jean Na and to Zachary Trebellis for offering your insights on your own experiences and work and for talking with us and sharing your knowledge. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you so much, Heather. The Break It Down, Make It Better podcast is presented in partnership with WGVU Public Media. Break It Down, Make It Better conversations are recorded in the WGVU Public Radio studio. Episodes are produced by Rick Bierling and hosted by Heather Duffy. Episodes can be streamed at WGVU.org and wherever you find your podcasts. But the 